We've all had those light bulb moments when we come up with a business idea that seems so good it could make us a fortune, right? And while successful businesses are born from great ideas, not all flashes of genius are made equal. Sadly, eight out of 10 businesses fail in the first 18 months. If you're wondering whether your idea can be profitable, do stay tuned. In this episode of Biz 503, we find out what separates money-making ideas from concepts that are likely to crash and burn. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project, co-hosting this afternoon with Kedma O, director of the Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, and so many other things. <laughs> Welcome, Kedma. Glad Thank to have you. you with us. And can I just ask you to, since our listeners are going to get to know you as part of our host team over time on Biz 503, what led you to your passion for small businesses? Well, I'm a, I'm a rare unicorn. I'm a fifth generation entrepreneur. So I was truly born into a lineage of entrepreneurship. And so really the passion began from, you know, birth on. And so, you know, as young as eight years old, I was negotiating. Um, I was looking at how to save my money and then uh, go back and, and charge more for my sister who needed the money. So <laughs> it's a it. way of life. And I have now, you know, transferred that passion into a career. Yeah, you sure have. Yeah. And so it, the sister never bested you. You <laughs> no, always came out ahead and five always. generations of entrepreneurship <laughs> didn't scare you. <laughs> Excellent. We're glad to have you as part of our host team. This week on Biz 503, I want to let you know, Emix Law Group, trusted legal advisors to startups and small businesses, will give away a free hour of legal work on an issue or a challenge that someone is facing in his or her business. The terms and conditions of an engagement letter will apply, and we are going to give it away via our awesome text to win system in just a few minutes. So you want to be ready to text the number 27299. So that's our text to win number, and we'll give you the word that you're going to text in just a few minutes, and then you'll have the word, okay? First, the basics of a business idea. That is the subject of our segment this morning. And joining us in the studio, Rick Tarosi, founder of Silicon Florist, co-founder of Pi, Portland Incubator Experiment, along with Wendy Cotella, small business strategist, mentor, entrepreneur, great love for education, technology, and empowering women and girls. And she's the founder of She Gets Business, a virtual program for early stage women entrepreneurs. So great to have uh, you with us in the studio today. Thank you so much. It's yeah. so fun to be here. Thanks for having us. It's great to be back. Right. And when we are joined by Angela Jackson from PSU, you guys will be hearing from the people in the realm, the region, who have some of the top level expertise in the realm of startups and small businesses. So we are really fortunate fortunate to have you with us today. Let's start, Rick, if you can talk to us with all those uh, folks coming to you in Pi, what kind of audience are you seeing? What is your lens? We tend to focus mainly on technology companies. So for the, most of the history of Pi, we focused on people building things on the web or within a mobile environment. But we're starting to see more and more activity that where people are focusing on hardware technology, so actual physical objects, not just virtual objects. And that's super exciting to me because we have such a rich history of hardware tech in the region, specifically with companies like Intel and Mentor Graphics. So we're really looking forward to getting into that. Is that different from the lens that you are coming to us with? 
Well, I appreciate the lens a lot because my corporate background is in technology. (laughs) So I spent the bulk of my career with Apple. I had a short stint at Google and had several years at Adobe as well. And I worked in the education space. Actually, I met Rick several years ago. He's one of the first people I met when I moved back to Portland and I became a mentor for Pi. That's how we met. And I have the MBA and I have the world-class company experience, but my happy place is really working with the one-woman, one-man shops. And I really love small business. And so uh, that's why, you know, I'm a teacher. I teach for a local nonprofit, uh, business foundations. Um, I'm starting to teach at a local university, business foundations. And then I also created She Gets Business, which is specifically for women entrepreneurs anywhere in the world. My students, rather than technology, can be doing a variety of things, coffee carts, jewelry, uh, handmade cards, mobile saunas. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I have a <laughs> very, <laughs> a really wide variety. And I think what I keep coming back to is regardless of whether or not you're a bigger company, a smaller company, a tech company, uh, consumer goods, it's still the same foundational knowledge that strengthens your ability to be successful. Yeah, um, I'd love to to have this either for Wendy or Rick. So I'm curious, I am, full disclosure, I'm a Gen X. And lately I have been uh, presenting to millennials and I'm pulling my hair out because I can't (laughs) figure out what the motivation is. So I'm curious to know in your experience, how are you getting millennials to find you? Do you see a shift in how they see business from a generational perspective, because I'd love to know for myself and also for people who are listening, who are millennials, who'd be excited about, you know, starting a business. Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. I'm seeing a different set, set of motivations for those entrepreneurs. So it's, it's generally not a get-rich-quick financial motivation. I think Portland classically has been more building a product, crafting a product, um, creating the best product possible rather than how, how do you become fabulously wealthy overnight. So I think our culture was already kind of attuned to what we're seeing with millennials, which is more, it, it takes it even further in terms of they enjoy the experience of building the business and enjoy the experience of creating the products. And so you have to find different ways to motivate. And, and I'm sure Wendy is encountering this different ways to teach them. You can't, you can't use the old techniques for teaching them how to do business, I don't think. Yeah, I would totally agree. Um, and I work with a lot of millennials in She Gets Business, um, both here in the United States and abroad. So I have students that are in Australia, Singapore, Ireland, New Zealand, and as well as here. And I'm, I'm actually a featured speaker at the Junior League of Portland um, <laughs> in two weeks, which does amazing work, by the way. They do incredible wow. work uh, for our community, and it's full of millennials. They're, the majority of their membership are millennials. And what I see is that this audience is really motivated by freedom and flexibility and writing their own rules. And the way that they connect with each other and communicate with each other leverages um, social technology very heavily. So the way that 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 work is done is leveraging these kinds of tools where uh, my students or folks that I work with in other capacities that are more in their 50s um, are very intimidated uh, by this and don't find it a natural thing. Well, I think that touches on something really important, specifically in tech where I tend to focus. I think a lot of people perceive that to be more of a young person's right. game. Yeah. And and I don't think it is. No. And we don't see just young people pursuing tech companies. I would say during the accelerator, our average age was 
early 30s, probably. So um, we have a broad range of entrepreneurs who are pursuing their ideas. There's Mm -hmm. lots of great cross-pollination that can occur with uh, intergenerational projects as we are experiencing (laughs) here at Portland Radio Project. Let me ask you guys, um, are there some questions that a person should ask themselves before they turn their idea or think about turning their idea into a business or other profit-making venture? Well, I always, um, so the folks that I most appreciate working with are not people who are starting a business because they have this long-term strategy of making millions of dollars and selling their company, although that's a perfectly valid goal. So I always focus on having people really drill down to their internal why about why they want to start a business and what their personal motivation is, what that vision is. So for example, for myself, um, flexibility and freedom is super important to me. Like I want a fully location independent business in three years and I want to service a global clientele, right? Which is entirely different than what somebody else might want. And so I really um, start there because I think it's important that as people build their businesses, I see that as the heart that they always map from. That's what I do. Yeah. And I think come uh, playing off that kind of tangentially, I think one of the most important questions we encounter in Portland specifically is, are you, are you doing this because you want to build a product or are you doing this because you want to build a business? Mm-hmm. And those aren't necessarily yeah. always complementary. What we find sometimes are people just really want to see a product come to fruition and they have to build a business to do that, but they're not really motivated by the business. Yeah. Hmm. Whereas folks who want to build businesses may be willing to forego their dream product because it doesn't fit the business model. So I think it's really important when you're starting out to say, what am I trying to accomplish here? Am yeah. I, do I just want this product to be yeah. a thing or do I want to build a true business? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to ask you both uh, sort of the idea of vetting a business idea. And when I think about Lori from Shark Tank, she always says, I know when it's zero <laughs> from what? Zero to hero. <laughs> zero to hero. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, how do you know when it's zero to hero? And have you ever been wrong? Have you ever Never. said, whoa. No, right. Every single time. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> So um, I think I get to kind of dodge this question because in my business, we're actually dealing with people first. So we're making bets on the people and trying to help them become better founders or teach them that they don't want to be a founder and they're perhaps maybe a better, highly talented employee for somebody else's company. So what we, what our decisions are purely made around the personality of the founders, how the team interacts whether they're coachable or stubborn. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our stuff, it has very little to do with the idea they're pursuing and determining whether they have the talent level and personality to bring an idea to fruition. Yeah. So for me, the way, um, the path that I take people down is really, um, I love this quote by Seth Godin. It is, uh, don't find customers for your product find products for your customers. And what Seth is really saying there is you may have a product, but if there's no customer need or want for it, you don't have a sale, right? And I want to focus on people who want to build a profitable business, but who are concerned with profit. And that might even be for profit for good, right? 
So I train people a lot about customer validation um, through surveying. So it might be through, um, I take them through tools like SurveyMonkey or Wufoo or Typeform. Um, we talk about focus groups. We talk about if you're an existing business, how you can, you can gather intel from customer feedback, like Etsy stores, like who's buying what and what are they saying about it. Online groups, for back for that audience that is online a lot, um, within Facebook groups, they can join Facebook groups that are um, very target rich for their target customer and basically gather intel about what their customers' pain points are, needs and wants are, and really kind of digging into the demographics and the psychographics of that and then testing your market idea with that target audience. And we, I, we're actually going to, uh, excuse me, Rick, yeah, we're, sure. we're actually going to go more into ah, yes, that idea are. of testing yes. in the right. next segment because that is a big conversation. But I think I heard you say that before you would actually even go there or think that you had something to test, that you need to believe it fits a need in your market, that there is actually a reason for this to go forward. Uh, but I think you get there from testing. So it's two sides of one coin. I mean, where, where Rick's looking at, people are actually competing to be part of the incubator experience um, where my folks are coming and they're self-selecting. And they're saying, I feel super passionate about this and now I need the tools and skills and confidence to make it happen. Well, and I think Wendy's touching on a really important point that I didn't want to get lost there, which is like, <laughs> I think so many, early stage founders or people who haven't done a business before think they need to keep their idea secret mm. and close to mm-hmm. the vest. And actually the secret at this stage is to talk to as many people as you possibly can that's right. and share your idea as often as you can, because that's how you're going to hone in on what the right idea is. Yeah. I'm saying, presuming that if it is Correct me if I'm wrong, but if they are thinking of filing patent, they probably don't want to go and start sharing that without some kind of NDA or, yeah, or what's your the, thought on I that? mean, there is, I, in the industry I work, most of the stuff they're doing is very difficult to patent. Perfect. You know, they're not coming up with IP along those lines. Um, intellectual property, sorry, I talk in gobbledygook acronyms <laughs> all the time. Um, so there are situations where that occurs, but I also kind of like my... My other side of that is if telling somebody your idea in a conversation at coffee is going to cause you to not build, like if you're going to lose to somebody else by telling them your idea, maybe you should be pursuing a different idea. Yeah. uh, And I've, I mean, I've had folks with like medical device technologies, for example. And so um, I guide them to basically make sure they're covered from a legal perspective for their intellectual property. So folks like MX, for example, I'd point them to MX and have them I say it's much better to pay a couple hundred bucks for an hour's worth of awesome guidance. Emix the law group is giving law away group. the legal, co- legal consultations during our show today. That's perfect. Or maybe the entrepreneur can win that particular uh, package, which is going to be given away. Text to win 27299 is the text to win number. So make a note of that. And um, we'll give it a win a yeah. little bit. So assuming your great business idea passes an early evaluation stage, how do you know it will make it on the market? We'll cover that at more after our short break. You're listening to Biz 503, the podcast for small businesses, startups, and anyone who wants to turn their idea into income. Biz 503 on PRP. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Rebecca Webb of PRP, co-hosting with Kedma O of Mount Hood Community College, SBDC. And we're glad to have you along for the ride. Yeah, today on Biz 503, we are all about business ideas and which ones 
can bring you the money, the moolah, the Benjamin. <laughs> In this segment, we're going to talk through how to test your idea against the market, something that we were just kind of getting a taste of right before the break. Back with us, Rick Tarosi of Pi, and joining him now on our panel is Angela Jackson, Managing Director of the Portland Seed Fund and Director at PSU's Center for Entrepreneurship and Business Accelerator. Glad to have you here, Angela. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to parachute in. Thanks for uh, sticking around, Rick. Yeah. Okay, so you guys were actually setting the stage when we left the last segment about market testing. So let's say you've come through that first step and you're pretty sure you have a valid idea. How do you find out for sure? So across the spectrum of Portland State University, where I'm dealing primarily with students, and Portland Seed Fund, where we're dealing with largely what we call traded sector entrepreneurs. That means the kind of entrepreneur who is probably pre-revenue to start, uh, but sees the moon and is shooting all the way for the moon and may die trying, but that's the ride they're on. Create a lot of wealth and a lot of jobs quickly. Very different, say, a jewelry maker who's looking for flexibility and to pay some bills. So with those kinds of businesses, uh, boy, there's just so many important questions. I am an extrovert. I believe in direct combat with people and future customers. So we will always teach or ask about who have you talked to about this? And I believe in polls and surveys too. But direct customer contact and the guts to ask the hard questions. And the kind of personality that you can take the hard answer. Yeah, you have to buck up because you're going to hear some things you don't like. Yep. And it's really easy for all of us to ask questions that we know the answer to. Get out of your comfort zone. Consider the audience. If you're asking people you're going to eat Thanksgiving dinner with for the rest of your life, uh, and you say, would you buy this? They're going to say yes. They want to say that to you. That's amazing. It's amazing. Please pass the stuffing. Um, ask pricing questions. Uh, ask tough questions. Be ready to hear the things you don't want. That's how I see entrepreneurs really progress. And I think um, where we try and push folks, we, the phrase we use is make the problem smaller. So I think a lot of folks have a very grand vision for when this product or business exists, it's going to be amazing and everybody's going to love it. And they get so infatuated with the vision that they never begin the tactics to actually implement that vision. So we're always encouraging people to like, how can we make that problem smaller? How can we start something today? How can we get really tactical about what you want to accomplish and take that first step on your strategy to achieving that vision. Love it. Let's talk about tools. You know, what's out there that, you know, is pretty accessible for people in the way of testing methods. We use the web a lot. And so one of the techniques that we used to do just almost as a pastime hobby at Pi is we would come up with a random idea. We would build a single web page splash page for that idea with a place to put your email address. And then we would go buy 20 bucks worth of Google ads or Facebook ads around that idea and see if anybody gave us their email address. I mean, there's a, and if they did, we're like, okay, maybe there's something to this idea. If nobody did, we're like, all right, scrap that idea. We'll try that again later. So just finding like really small tactical ways that you can start to test that stuff online, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. I think people shouldn't be afraid of like starting your idea as an email list or a Facebook group or a Slack channel or something where you don't have to invest a lot of time, energy or technology to get there, but you can start testing the ideas with it with an audience like like Angela's saying, you know, people who aren't your friends and family who are going to smile and nod <laughs> every time you talk about your idea. Um, I'd love to hear from either of you just in terms of the depth 
of market research necessary. So I had seen a recent statistic that said that in order to do a national rollout, you should be testing with about 3,000 customers, which may not be realistic. What does that look like for you? What are you asking them to do to test with maybe 50, 100? Or can they come in and say, this is my top five, ready to go. In most cases, our advice would be don't start with a national rollout. National rollouts require a lot more cash to do properly. Although Rick raises a great point with technology, you can really reach quickly, uh, you know, cheaply a diverse audience, which could be national, but that belies the cost of, you know, the marketing cost behind going national. So we would say, you know, start with where you can kind of have a finger on the pulse of the results, which is usually, you know, local. And then, you know, rather than expand nationally, maybe a smarter strategy most often is find markets that have characteristics similar to the market that you've proven. And that's a scrappy way to use a small amount of money and expand, still selectively and judiciously, but still expand. So find models examples of, of that are similar. Somehow. Yeah. I, so I can speak to the Portland Seed Fund portfolio. We have a couple of companies that have city by city markets. Mm-hmm. And of course, they all started in Portland where they could see it, touch it, feel it, have a lot of direct customer contact. But when they tapped out this market or got other opportunities, you know, they had to rank and stack who next. So they did some both data analysis and market analysis, but also I like to call it top down and bottom up. Also bottom up, you know, walk the streets of the new place talk to the vendors you're going to be depending on, talk to the other side of the chain. You know, does that market feel like it has similar characteristics? If so, if the data and the bottom walking meet, that might be uh, the next best place to go. Well, and Angela raises a good point on kind of market by market. If a company like Amazon doesn't nationally roll out a new service and rather tests it in Seattle with the people they know first, and that's how they successfully do things, then an entrepreneur is not going to be able to do a national rollout right out of the gates and be terribly successful with it. So it's like, look for those models, look how other businesses in your industry test the market. Um, Even though they're larger corporate entities, they will often reveal some techniques that are accessible to entrepreneurs as well. And Angela, to your point, you mentioned, you know, small amount of money, which is so you know, that is <laughs> subjective. Yeah, exactly. So what is a small amount of money? And then are there resources, you know, like universities where maybe students can help with some of the research or some other um, out of the box thinking to help offset what could be potentially costly? Sure. Well, as an investor, a fund who on the Portland Seed Fund side, we get a lot of open hands like, we've got this all figured. All we need is some money. And we'll kick this thing to the sky. That's right. We're looking for proof that they can extend that cash for a long time by being scrappy. So even if ultimately they do end up raising a lot of money, in these early days, cash is precious. And those early CEOs, it doesn't matter if it's a food cart or a technology. If you are thinking you're going to be the next best big thing and you need other people's money to do it, you really become the Pied Piper. You are selling things before they're really built. You are hiring people before you can really pay them. You're promising this large vision and they have to get on the rocket ship with you because you're conserving precious cash. Cash has to go only for the things you need it for. Um, So on the research side, though, you raise a good point, Kedma. There's a great capstone program at Portland State University. I've seen some $40,000, $50,000 research projects done for free by using like MBA teams, market research teams. So yeah, folks can go and figure out how to 
access that. And I'm assuming some resources are available also at Mount Hood. Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. And actually at the SBDC network, we provide um, uh, market research as part of our process and we pay licensing costs for major databases that help also provide some of that impact. Uh, so yeah, that's also available. That's a great resource. Yes. yes. So what kind of marketing research do you encourage students to do? I think to their point, I mean, I'm all about primary research. I want to feel, touch. So, you know, I, I remember working with a client a few years ago that was looking at an invention uh, in the trucking industry and had years in the business, up and down, said, this is going to make it. And I finally said, have you tested it? He said, well, no, I haven't done the product yet, but I know it's going to go there. I said, okay, well, first thing we need to do <laughs> is actually have people test it and Talk see if it works. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm agreeing exactly with both of you on that. Yeah, and to get back to your um, small amount of capital yeah. kind of question, like I think there are a variety of levels of capital that people can access for their businesses. I think I feel for Angela in that being seen as someone with money, people often approach her and her organization too soon without using other resources at their disposal, either personal resources or family and friends kind of resources. There are certain stages where it's always good to have conversations with everybody, but engaging in actual business with true investors is something many companies often leap to far too soon. So in, in this discussion, we're always talking about how to do it right. Give me five bullet points of how to do it wrong. Great question. Uh, <laughs> Watch out for these things. <laughs> don't talk to anyone. Don't talk to anyone. That's a good one. Just keep it to yourself and <laughs> keep working yourself. on it. Um, In your basement. Build it, build it to scale up to a million users before you launch the product. <laughs> okay. Polish the product continually and make it perfect before you show it okay. to anyone. Um I can throw in anything. Throw in it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think the biggest one that people just don't talk about is asking themselves how long are they willing to be on this journey of being broke, mm. stressed mm. to the max. Um, and I know that I used to think I was an idea mill. Uh, oh, man, I just walk around and have great ideas. This is terrific. The truth is the hard part of any business is the execution yes. and the successful repeat of that execution. And that gets boring for some entrepreneurs. So... I think up front, having honest conversations with oneself, how long are they willing to be broke and stressed and then double it and then ask themselves honestly about the risk profile they have personally? There's no wrong answer here. Having a job instead of create, you know, entrepreneurship is kind of sexy right now. I see a lot of people trying who really never had that conversation with themselves. They need to take themselves out. It's just not worth it for their yeah. life and themselves. So that would be my... And I think to, to, to kind of pile on there, I think... Um, the other big mistake is think of every milestone as a finish line. So we have people who are like, oh, I made it into an accelerator. Great. I'm done. <laughs> I raised money. Great. I'm done. Like the, every, every milestone is actually a starting line, not a finish line. So it's just the next phase that you're going to experience. That doesn't mean you shouldn't celebrate small wins. Everybody deserves to celebrate their wins. But don't think of it as kind of a terminal thing. It's just the beginning of the next phase. Is there any uh, rule about what stage you should be at before you start trying to create some kind of prototype mm. for your product? I'm sure it depends on the product, but maybe you could talk about that. 
I think it's becoming easier and easier to prototype things. I think to Angela's point, as entrepreneurship and startups have kind of entered the popular culture, that has given way to a whole bunch of support services or ways of making that stuff easier. So um, one of my favorite stories was... um, Olympia Oyster Bar up on Mississippi when they were thinking about this grand vision for a restaurant and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, let's make that smaller. Like, how can we how can we test this idea? You think there needs to be an oyster bar, but do you know? And so we're like, can we make it a food cart? Can we make it a pop-up shop? And so there are even in the physical world, um, can I 3D print it? Can I, can I, you know, go to PSU, go to the lid and have them print a board for me so I can test the, test the technology? There's so many more resources now than there were even three or four years ago that you have no excuse for not testing and prototyping as soon as you possibly can. And the truth is, you can say that you're doing some sort of online commerce. You can honestly create a little sheets of paper and get people in a room with the design that you're thinking about, arrange them in the way that you think. <laughs> you might set up your website um, and have people kind of toggle around with paper. You're going to learn something from that about usability and the customer experience, and you don't need half a million dollars to do that. Um, I want to go to Angela. There was a, something that you mentioned before, and I'm curious. It was really about, you know, how long are you willing to be broke? And, you know, when people come to me and say, I want a loan, the first thing they say is, I'm going to start this business. I want a loan. I'm going to quit my job. Don't quit your job <laughs> when you're trying to get a loan. So my, my curiosity is, is it better for them to have other funds coming in while they're building this idea or do they just jump and go forward? I'd love to get your thought on that. That is a great question. And I think there's both answers. So this comes back to knowing thyself first and foremost, knowing thyself and knowing what path you're on. If you're on this uh, rocket ship journey where you're going to seek outside people's money, at least in the form of investments, they will expect you to leave your job Mm. and go all in. They will say, I'm risking something to back you and you're hedging your bets by keeping a job. Not my kind of deal. On the other hand, what you say I think is exactly right. If you're getting a loan, that's not a time to lose income. If you're not sure, you can prototype stuff in your spare time and make your own personal decision about if there's a there there. Where things get complicated again is once you have outside investment, you are clearly on a path where you have to be all in. Also, once you hire people, that's maybe less rocky. You can have those kinds of conversations with people up front. But anyone who's ever had to lay somebody off or fire people, it's not, most of us don't enjoy that. (laughs) So think ahead before you know what path you're on. Great. Yeah, I think for the companies we we deal with at the accelerator, one of the requirements is that they be working on the project full time. So by the time we figured out if they belong in the accelerator, part of the reason we provide them with a little bit of seed capital is so that it encourages them to make that leap and focus on the business full time because it will never come about as quickly as you want it to if you're only working on it on the weekends. I love your garage band, but it's never going to go platinum if you're just working on it on the weekends. So you kind of have to go figure out a way to go all in as quickly as you can. You know, as I'm listening, one of the things that popped in my head is, you know, I think about the average uh, business owner may not have actually met an investor. So they're, they're may visualizing an investor like Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. Is it really like the Shark Tank in terms of if you've seen Shark Tank? Is sort of that investing like that? I mean, is there really sort of a Kevin behind who's, who's you know, looking at licensing? I'd love to just get the real behind the scene. What is it like to be an investor? 
Wouldn't Shark Tank be exciting if they showed all the wheeling and dealing that actually occurs? <laughs> It'd be like four days of like papers going back and forth consistently. Great. Yeah. There are elements of Shark Tank, I think, that yeah. are correct. Um, there's a number of Portland-based companies that have been funded through Shark Tank. And there are more that appeared on Shark Tank and decided not to take the deal for one reason or another. Honestly, I think it's more on track than off track, mm. although they make adjustments for TV, obviously. They're only generally dealing with consumer product mm -hmm. because in TV environment, that's more tangible to understand. But they are putting their own money in, which I admire. And from what I've heard from behind the scenes, they're fairly intelligent. And so I give that mm -hmm. show a lot of props for actually getting more entrepreneurs mm -hmm. thinking that they can be on this path. That's exciting. But no, my life is not like a shark. Well, not like that. <laughs> but I think one, one really important thing for... Um, that we encounter founders all the time that don't really understand is that usually the person on the other side of the table and is very much in the same situation as you, investors have gone out to wealthy individuals or foundations to take money to invest on their behalf. And so they are very much in a situation where they need to be proving return and they need to be doing the best thing they can do with the people's money that they've um, been put in charge of. So I think a lot of founders think that Angela goes home and swims in a pool like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> And like, the, like she's just got all this like a wealth of capital sitting there. When in actuality, she's in very a very similar situation to a lot of the founders seeking capital. There's kind of a, a local version of Shark Tank in Fast Pitch, which is offered series uh, offered by I think OEN or maybe Venture Partners. At any rate, would you recommend that anyone uh, who has a business idea participate in something like that, just to sort of crunch down to their uh, key points? Absolutely. The other one that's really great and. Portland State does a good job of supporting is Startup Weekend. Mm. Um, the Startup Weekend program is a great way if you've never founded a business before or aren't sure that your idea is quite right, it's a great way of kind of getting a crash course on what it's like to test an idea, build a business, build a team, and pitch. And I think the next one's coming up in May. Um, it'll be hosted over at Vacasa. Cool. So we're going to just talk a little bit more about that because that is a great topic. And we have kind of a checklist of things that we want to get from you. Wendy's been been very patient over here. We're going to bring her back because she's just got tons to say about this. And we're going to give away the legal consultation for business from Imix Law Group after a short break. Are you ready to turn your idea into cash? Or are you already launched and hitting roadblocks? Join PRP each Friday at 1 p.m. for Biz 503, the talk show for startups and small businesses. Welcome back. I am Kedma O, oh, co-hosting with the wonderful Rebecca Webb for today's episode of Biz 503. Thanks, Kedma. Hey, we've covered a lot of aspects of business ideas and, you know, sort of how to evaluate them. What we want to ask our panel now is what crucial pieces really need to be locked down before you make that crucial decision to start a business? Yeah, and rejoining us in the studio, we have Wendy. I'm going to say could Tila. Cotilla. Cotilla. Great. Small business strategist, mentor, and entrepreneur. And of course, Angela Jackson of Portland Seed Fund, PSU Center for Entrepreneurship and Business Accelerator. Wow. <laughs> so let's start. That's fancy. <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> so let's just start, you know, with a little bit more on what that checklist should include. Are there some critical points, some things that you have to have checked off before you make the decision? 
I mean, I think we've touched upon that and it's just bulleting that out. The first thing uh, which Angela was talking about is do you actually have the um, temperament and do you have an actual understanding that it is work? You know, I don't know anybody who's become a success overnight, have an idea and boom, they started this amazing business. It's hard work. And if anybody knows that kind of person, please send them my way and <laughs> teach me the secret. So the first thing is really understanding your own um, strengths and weaknesses and do you have the temperament to be an entrepreneur. But the second thing is really understanding what the market need is, because that's really what we're talking about is we're not talking about hobbyists. We're talking about people building businesses. And it's really um, sort of connecting the dots between, in my mind, between what brings you joy, like where you really want to spend your time, what you, what you're very passionate about and the market's need for that thing. You know, I hear you talking a lot about work-life balance. And do you think it's safe to assume that people who start their own business just have to give that up to some degree? I mean, how do you really guard it? Are you talking about people who go in headfirst? So another must-do is pursue a business that you're passionate about. You will be in it all the time. And is that work-life balance? Well, if your hobby and your passion is skateboarding and you start a business relating to skateboards, well, suddenly instead of paying to go to all the cool places... Now you get comped and you can cut it off your taxes. You maybe don't care if you're profitable or not. Your life is your work. So it really depends. Again, this is back to knowing what path you're on. Absolutely credible business to go do that. Now, again, once you start taking other people's money, I think the expectations shift quite a bit. And I have advised some entrepreneurs that I've had some who recently divorced, mm. not a clear path to financial support from the spouse, young children, lots of stress around. And I just want to be clear, I'm not making a gender-based comment. This can go any way. Could be mother, father, whoever. Probably not the best time to inject yet another stressful element into one's life. Such uh, a good point. So timing is important for the person. It, the journey will be longer. But once you're in, and I think this is the other part of the checklist, then you're all in and it's like, I want to assemble my team. I recommend people form a kitchen cabinet. That's what I like to call it. This is a trusted group of people, not a formal board. You don't necessarily at this stage of the game need a formal board and nor would I recommend one because boards of directors as they are corporately defined carry liability for those directors and a lot of extra work for the founders that they're not ready for. So just use this informal network of advisors called the kitchen cabinet. And I believe that every entrepreneur, whatever path they're on, should always trying to be increasing the number of people that they could pick up the phone and call and tell them of some bad news, mm -hmm. the company, and they would get some great advice about how to fix it or some support. So building that kitchen cabinet, the people you can pick up the phone and call who won't hang up on you, who will try to help you, always a good thing. So uh, Wendy and Angela, what I keep hearing is a lot of mentoring. And I'm curious, you know, there's this, this question that always goes back, are entrepreneurs born or can you create them? Are they made, right? I feel like I was born entrepreneur, right? Just my own personal opinion, right? But others say can, you can make. I'm curious though about the characteristics because, you know, how do you teach charisma? I mean, is that something that you can just create and say, you know what, thanks for coming through the program and you are now going to be charismatic. <laughs> So, <laughs> and do you have to have it to be and successful in business? It. So I'm curious to know, tell me the top characteristics that you see that make an entrepreneur an entrepreneur. 
Um, I think it comes back to the type of the vision that you have for the type of business you want to build. Um, You know, there can be introverted people, very introverted people or people with um, a particular skill set, but not necessarily um, knowing how to do other things. You know, you don't need to be charismatic if your um, goal is to build, you know, a one woman shop, for example, and lean on mentors or advisors for different things. You know, when I uh, when I teach basically in terms of a business plan, the operational plan and the company overview, one of the things that we map out is understanding your own core competencies and where your gaps are and how do you fill those gaps. And those gaps can be filled with advisors um, who can be sort of folks who are willing to have a coffee date with you and steer you in the right direction, all the way to mentors with whom you have a deeper um, and more personal relationship with. So back to the thing about you know, what kind of characteristics. I mean, first and foremost, I think you need to be passionate about your idea. Um, And second, I think you need to be very um, tenacious. There will be times when you just say, I want to give up. And then you don't give up because tomorrow is a new day and you get back on the proverbial horse. Um, Those are the top two things, I think. And then resourceful, um, scrappy. Um, So, you know, really being willing to um, recognize where your own skill or knowledge gaps are and to be willing to take the step, the courageous step to actually fill those gaps. That's great. And you asked about charisma and I'll pivot that a little bit to authenticity. Oh yeah. Are you the right ambassador for this? Because when you are, you just, I don't know, vibrate with your message, with your product and it attracts others to your message. So I think it's really important for people to pick something that again, they're authentically passionate about, even though there will be good days and terrible days. Mm. When they have that passion and authenticity that just rings through, they don't have to be necessarily like you were saying, they don't have to be a wild extrovert or, Mm -hmm. you know, tap dancing. (laughs) That that authenticity just exudes. But the other skill I would add, and Wendy's got a great list here, you are going to hear as an entrepreneur, so many conflicting pieces of advice. (laughs) You will feel like a ping pong ball. Oh, yeah going from one piece to the next. And that is part of the job. So uh, I would say the mantra is there's probably a nugget of truth in everything you hear. When you start to hear something three and four times, even Mm -hmm. if you don't like it, (laughs) you probably need to say there's a nugget of truth to this and I need to dig in. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be comfortable with uncertainty and uh, the fact that people will tell you exactly the opposite things from their heart about how to Mm -hmm. run your business. And you have to ultimately, as the leader, listen to it all and make a decision. Which might be true for them. Like they might be telling you something that's that's 100% true from their experience. Um, and still, sometimes you're testing a different way. You're creating a different path. No, I love that. And as you're talking about mentorship, you know, when I know both of you and I can see the success, I'm curious to know who were your mentors? Tell me one or two mentors that inspired you to where you are today, because that's tremendous. It's like, who made you move in this first? Okay. <laughs> Mine's a really ragtag list. It, it has to start with my parents. I came from a serial entrepreneur family, and I didn't realize it till much later, but we, they were all in on the family business. And it was the third business, and this is important too, because the first two failed, mm. okay? Failure is absolutely a part of the journey. Um, ideally, we like to fail fast, fail cheap, learn and redeploy. Uh, <laughs> that's the best use of failure. But they were on the third business by the time I came along. Watching them go all in and take those kinds of calculated risks and then the rewards for doing so, that for sure is my number one mentor. But I also have to throw in like a sea captain I sailed with um, <laughs> you know, back oh. in the day who was so masterful with people mm. and finding the right place for even the 
Island of Broken Toys type people. <laughs> like he just knew how to bring out the best in everybody and mm-hmm. find them their right place so that mm. everybody was better. I really try to take from that because it's easy to get in this snarky attitude. You see things that you know aren't going to work. It's easy to get cynical and just say, you know, and enjoy that. Turns out I don't enjoy that. I much more enjoy helping everyone find their right place that's ultimately going to lift all the boats. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So I have a lot of mentors too, but uh, I think what I do is I look at what I need to learn next. So a key driver for me is continuous learning. I'm always, um, I'm truly passionate about that. Um, So for example, in creating She Gets Business, which is a virtual classroom, I could teach the curriculum. I mean, I wrote the curriculum, I created the workbooks and the worksheets and the videos, but I didn't know how to deliver it and I didn't know how to market it online. So I had to go find mentors that had specific skill sets to teach me to, to do that. So I looked for women who were servicing a similar kind of audience who are financially kicking it in their businesses and uh, who could teach me things like uh, about Facebook ads or um, running uh, an online mastermind, et cetera. So there's a couple of folks that I follow online that I consider mentors. Um, Natalie Lucier is one. She has this amazing online business with her husband. They create online technology. Another one is Natalie McNeil. So I'm a member of this group called She Conquers the World. And it's this beautiful, rich community of thousands of women who are following a similar journey to me. So that community is there and I just learn a ton from the community. And then in person, like here in Portland, I'd consider Linda Weston to be one of my mentors. So she is the former director of the Oregon Entrepreneurs Network. And she ran the organization for 17, 18 years. Uh, She is grace under pressure, epitomized. And she is one person that I just really love sitting down and talking with about anything. So inspiring. And she has her own consulting uh, she after does. having just yeah. retired. Reporto. Reporto. I'm glad you recalled that. Okay, we want to give away uh, the MX package, but before we do that, I want to bring Rick Tarosi of Pi back in because I think that you've seen enough people come through your organization. Maybe you have seen some patterns here. What are the qualities that you would say fit the appropriate entrepreneur or the one who's potentially mm-hmm. successful? Yeah, and it, especially like we were talking about earlier, we deal with the people so much, even more so than the idea. I think for us, I think there's a prevailing misconception of like the Steve Jobs archetype of a leader of a startup or technology company where you're stubborn and push things forward. And I think we often look for entirely the opposite of that. We look for people who are coachable and willing to take feedback, who have the tenacity to stand up to what they believe the right idea to be, but also who are willing to engage in conversations where they can admit they might not be right and that somebody else might have a better viewpoint on it. You know, I love that. And and one of the things I want to hear uh, that is really close to my heart is I see a lot of diversity, you know, with businesses. And I'm going to give an example, and I'd, I'd love to get your comments. So, you know, you take someone who has gone through a divorce. Maybe she has been caring for her kids her whole life, and she doesn't have an education, and she doesn't have a lot of income. This would maybe be so exciting but intimidating because her confidence is not there. What are the baby steps that she can do to move forward? Because if I was in those shoes, I would admire you, but I'd be afraid to reach out to you because I wouldn't feel I'm good enough. Mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts because that I can feel that um, a lot of times when I meet with people. Mm-hmm. How do you work through that challenge? 
Can I take that? I work with those folks a lot. So firstly, in Mercy Corps, Mercy Corps Northwest, again, they have an outreach to um, women, minorities, and low income. So have a wide diversity in the classroom. Um, And so mindset is firstly a very huge one. So these fear factors that whether or not they are um, conscious, um, it's something that um, I like to address right off. My teaching style is on purpose very informal because I want to create a very warm, welcome classroom. And in my online program as well, you know, it's the same issue. It's oftentimes fear holding us back from taking that first step or continuing. And it's the little voice in your head that says, who are you to be doing this? You're never going to make this work. You know what? you should just go clean the house instead, you know, kind of thing. Like you think of excuses of why you don't work on your idea. So I really try to, in my teaching, take the fancy MBA terms and break them down to very digestible phrases. So for example, um, I don't call customer definition that. I call it finding your fans in focus. I don't call unique value proposition or UVP that. I call it your special sauce. So I try to make it really fun and friendly and digestible. Two, I think for that working uh, or that single parent or that parent who is, you know, working the day job and dreaming about something else, time is a very big thing. And, you know, I'm the mother of a seven-year-old and my husband is very often traveling. Sometimes I'm in the car for two days. Uh, two days. That would be a long commute. <laughs> it feels like two days, but two hours. So um, I, I try to create my teaching with those kinds of constraints in mind. So that's why I think also having the choice of a physical something you go to or a virtual something you go to that you can listen to at 10 o'clock at night or, you know, after the kiddos are in bed or as you're driving somewhere that you can still be learning. Awesome. Any other comments? Only to say, I don't think that feeling ever goes away. Yeah. Fear is everywhere. Yeah. And we yeah. all could do a good job learning how to channel that fear. Right. Um, but also, I would just say, surround yourself with people who make you feel good about yeah. yourself and what you're doing. Uh, and that applies to everybody. Uh, yeah. So that's a small step someone can take to build confidence before launching it. And I would, I would just add on, don't always think you need to seek out expertise. Sometimes having somebody who looks like you, talks like you, has had the same experience as you can be as valuable as a peer mentor, yeah. regardless of their expertise. Experience often trumps expertise. For yeah, folks. I love that. I'm going to throw a curveball. So I would love to know if each of you were banned from what you do today, what kind of business would you get into? <laughs> I love that. I mean, we can't, we can't do Cannot do what you're doing today. Oh, that's easy. I mean, it says in my bio that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that I'm, uh, I'm pretending to be a uh, real estate agent or a, um, <laughs> interior designer. <laughs> and oh. people ask me all the time because I love both real estate and design. Okay, awesome. Angela. Angela. <laughs> today it would be the flamenco dancing, sailing. Oh, la la. Uh, I like With that. With that captain, no doubt. <laughs> so, see you in southern Spain. I like it. Okay, Rick, you're up. And I would probably go back to coaching a sport of some sort, nice. most likely soccer or All lacrosse right. or and, wrestling. Or and something. you, Kedma? Yeah. Oh, um, curveball. It's definitely going to be something with children. I love hanging out with kids, so probably own my own amusement park. Oh, nice. <laughs> 
Wonderful. (laughs) Okay, we're going to give away the MX package now. So let me tell you a little bit about that. They are trusted legal advisors to startups and small businesses. They're giving away a free hour of legal work on an issue or a challenge that you are facing in your business. How generous of them. The terms and conditions of an engagement letter will apply. And you want to text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 27299. Our text number is 27299. Text the word biz. You'll get that great consultation with Emic's law firm. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for being here today. Wendy Cotella, small business strategist, mentor, entrepreneur. Angela Jackson from the Portland Seed Fund and PSU's Center for Entrepreneurship and Business Accelerator. Rick Tarosi, founder of Silicon Florist with an L and co-founder of Pi, Portland Incubator Experiment. I told you guys, along with Kedma O, that you were going to be in the company (laughs) of the region's top experts on business and startups. And thank you so much. Now, next week on Biz 503, we're going to take a look at how to turn your great idea into money. Emphasis on how to do that now that you've decided you have such a great idea. Tips from successful entrepreneurs on Biz 503 next time. Have a great weekend. Support for Biz 503 comes from Imix Law Group, offering trusted legal advice to startups and small businesses. Imix for business advice. 